Welcome to the Space Store Podcast. You're listening to our Space Roundup. Every fortnight on the Space Roundup, we are joined by space experts and astronomers Nick Howes and Terry Mosley to catch up on the latest and greatest space news from across the universe. The Space Roundup is also available to watch in wonderful Technicolor along with all of Season 1 and 2 on the Space Store YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Space Store Live. Welcome back, space fans, to another episode of the Space Roundup on Space to Alive. We're joined by our uh, space experts and astronomers, Nick and Terry. How are you guys doing tonight? Very hot. well. <laughs> Very hot. Very yeah, well, we hope you've been enjoying the weather um, and we're ready to go for another action-packed show tonight sweltering here in the uk but yes we will do our best but thanks again uh to our amazing team at space store um joined by my wonderful friend terry um who we are going to get to see each other again very soon yes <laughs> now indeed. all this lockdown malarkey is hopefully coming to a close but who knows we'll, we'll see how it goes um yeah we've got a packed show tonight we've got loads happening and obviously the massive story this week is much like buses um, you wait for a billionaire to come along and launch a space rocket, and then two come along at the same time. Um, so it's been a lifelong dream for so many people to go into space. And for probably since the dawn of the space age, it's been very limiting. It's been you know, typically test pilots or uh, scientists, etc. Astronauts have had to undergo years and years of training, uh, which is all very well. And now we have commercial space flight. Commercial space flight has actually started to happen. Um, obviously, we had the first one with Virgin Galactic uh, launching a few days ago, uh, depending on when you're watching this. Uh, Richard Branson, who, I mean, Richard Branson's got this amazing history. Let, let's kind of not beat about the bush. The guy's cheated death, apparently, according to his own count, 75 times. So, He's he's clearly like a cat with multiple lives. The guy's flown you know flown transatlantic and global trotting balloons. He's crossed the Atlantic in high speed boats, setting all sorts of records there. He set up a record company in the seventies uh, with virtually no money, uh, getting tubular bells from Mike Oldfield. The the theme from uh, the movie The Exorcist is kind of his big launch track, as it were. Um, he's done that. He's done his airline. He's got mobile phone companies, all sorts. And now, obviously, for the past 17 years, as he said himself, he's been, you know, pushing the idea of going into space and uh, working with Burt Rutan at Scale Composites. They, uh, you know, obviously now quite some time ago uh, with the original uh, launch of the of the uh, Unity rocket, as it as was, or the Spaceship One, uh, as was then, uh, they, you know, got the uh, X Prize. They were the first to cross the Kármán line and go into space. Now, there's been a lot of debate about this over the last week or so, and I'd be interested to get Terry's take on this, because did Branson actually go into space um, is the key question that's been vexing a lot of people. And, you know, there's, there was a whole series of quite almost petty slash funny tweets from Blue Origin, and we'll go on to those in a minute, where they're saying, well, basically, space doesn't start until you're 100 kilometers up, 62 miles up, with this uh, thing called the Kármán line, which is an internationally recognized boundary between the Earth's atmosphere and space, between the upper mesosphere and space. Um, now, there's arguments for and against this. Um, some very notable astronomers and astrodynamics experts, people like Jonathan McDowell, for example, who's very well known for his leading, world-leading expertise in terms of astrodynamics, where he's argued that the Kármán line could actually go a lot lower than this, potentially between 75, 80 kilometers. Um, all very cool. Um, it's whether or not you, you want to go with this USAF, you know, US Air Force, nominal space line at 50 miles or 80 kilometers or you want to look at the internationally recognized one uh, 100 kilometers 62 miles so branson went up um just over a, a few days ago as i said depending on when you listen to this uh, the unity rocket was an airdrop so very similar to the kind of old x-15 pilots and you know some of these people some of the x-15 test pilots you know, we've only got one left now sadly joe engels the only surviving x-15 pilots but we had you know counted the likes of um 
you know, Neil Armstrong was one as well. These people, some of them gain their astronaut wings on the X-15. And this was, you know, in the old days, B-52 bomber would basically drop the X-15. It would then fire its rocket boosters, fly up to several hundred thousand feet above the Earth's atmosphere, lose all aerodynamic control, as you may have seen in the movie First Man, uh, and then come back down to Earth. And sadly, one astronaut or test pilot was killed uh, during the X-15 program. But it, set, it really did pave the way for a lot of research that went into the space shuttle. And then Bert Rutan comes along with this incredible design for the Spaceship One, Spaceship Two, now Unity, uh, where it's got this feathered control when it basically loses its aerodynamic control up in the uh, the edge of space, for want of a better term. Um, the thing that got me about Branson's flight was the level of cheese. And if you don't understand what I mean, it, it was very corny. The, the kind of broadcast wasn't wasn't ideal. It wasn't optimal or nominal, as you say, in space terms. It was a little bit corny. It was a little bit kind of, I don't know, Americanized maybe, but for want of a better term, it was very kind of yeehaw kind of thing. It just didn't sit well. I don't know what you thought, Terry, but to me, it just didn't sit all that well watching it. Yeah, I, I'm not all that worried about the PR side, although uh, you have to hand it to both Bezos and, and Musk and uh, sort of experts PR. But the question is, was it really space or, or not? And, uh, you know, although he's a British uh, entrepreneur, he was flying from America. And, of course, America can set its own uh, rules about things basically being the superpower that they are. And they insist on in using feet instead of kilometers and so on. So if you're flying from America, I suppose you, you're sort of entitled to use the American uh, definition of 50 miles, but uh, it'd be nice if they could actually get above the 100 kilometer limit. Uh, no, I don't know if they will ever actually be able to do that by tweaking it, by saving weight, by getting more efficient um, engines or thrust and so on the way. You know, every every model of a, a new car, a new plane that comes out has a slightly better performance. Absolutely. But one thing that fascinates me about this they don't actually ever go that fast. They only go about Mach 3 yeah. to get up to that height. Now, that's not as fast as an SR-71 Blackbird, the American <laughs> stealth, yeah. stealth, you know, although slightly higher in miles per hour. But in terms of Mach number, because the space is a lot, or the air is a lot thinner up there, the uh, SR-71 SR reaches Mach 3.3. So as you're not going all that fast, and maybe that's why their flight actually lasts a bit longer from uh, landing or from takeoff to landing about an hour altogether. So you get a bit longer of the, the total experience. But total amount of time spent weightless in space is approximately the same. But with uh, with Virgin, you get an hour. With Jeff uh, Bezos, you get you get ten minutes basically. But what a ten minutes! Well, that was the thing watching it today, um, and hopefully most of our listeners and anyone who's watching this will have seen the launch today. It was more of a traditional launch. You know, he's named the rockets New Shepard, and there's going to be New Glenn and a New Armstrong eventually at some point. Uh, but New Shepard, obviously, in honor of Alan Shepard, the first American to go into space on a 15-minute suborbital flight back in the early 1960s, and and the only one of the Mercury 7 who then eventually went to the moon on Apollo 14. Um, but it is, to, again, you say, Terry, that you've got an hour. Yes, but most of that hour is a high-altitude flight in That's an aircraft. True. And yes, it's very cool, the fact that you then drop away from the carrier aircraft and then, you you know, the retro rockets fire and you boost up into space and you, you know, this amazing vertical climb, as you said, about Mach 3. Um, and you are getting a longer duration flight. So, Potentially, yes, it's it's better in that respect, but there's something just so wonderful about a vertical takeoff rocket yep, being in a capsule in the kind of Apollo style and then coming back with the chutes deploying, you know, drogue chutes initially deploying and then the main chutes deploying and then this kind of almost imperceptible landing in the desert with the retros firing literally six feet above the ground to, to slow it down much as the, the Soyuz does when it's bringing astronauts back to Earth and it's kind of like almost like bumping your car at a very slow speed in a car park is how it's been described by yeah. uh, you know some of the scientists who've worked on it. The thing is as well they've, they've employed hundreds of engineers there's a lot of criticism about the kind of rich person's playground this rich man's playground all these billionaires um, chasing the dream of going into space and what about the real problems we've got on earth with you know the pandemic and climate change and you know all of the other things but 
it was interesting watching an interview with Branson where he said that, you know, this program has employed 800 engineers, at, you know, the likes of Scale Composites and Virgin Galactic and through the whole supply chain, 800 engineers and scientists working on this for decades. And, you know, yes, he agrees that possibly a lot of the, of the wealthier uh, people in the world, you know, the likes of himself and Bezos and Musk, etc., should be donating vast amounts of their personal fortune possibly into solving some of these big problems. But... He's, it was a really interesting point that he made in the interview that he wants to kind of promote new industries. And mm -hmm. if you look at in the UK, for example, we've set a, a goal now by 2030 where we're going to have no more cars with internal combustion engines. So we've got to set up battery factories. We've got to set up a whole electric vehicle production line. Otherwise, we're going to have potentially 400,000 people unemployed who currently work in car plants manufacturing internal combustion engine cars. Yep. So yep. that retraining and these new kind of business models i think is really interesting but go, going on back to bezos bezos's stroke of genius on this wasn't the fact that he the richest man on on the planet and his brother were going up it was the fact that they decided to bring along wally funk now yeah. everybody must know by now who wally funk is but if you don't she was part of the mercury 13 so uh, Dr. Lovelace in the 1960s set out an experiment to basically prove that uh, the female pilots of the time, the exceptional uh, female pilots at the time, were just as capable as the men, the Mercury 7, of handling spaceflight. And it's since been proved that in many respects, women are far better um, as crew members on spaceflight because of lower mass and consumables, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's a whole plethora of reasons. And the fact that Wally was in her 20s when she trained for this, when she went through all of the medical tests, et cetera, and passed with flying colors. And now at 82, it's, it's just amazing to think that you know somebody, an octogenarian can go into space and quite easily handle it. She bounced out of that capsule when it touched out the look of joy on her face was just amazing and you know this thing had, okay it had flown 15 test flights before it was you know pretty safe it was but there's always a risk with anything things can go wrong and the fact that they have both the oldest person who's ever been into space and the youngest person on yeah. the same flight i just i uh, loved it I, I thought it was really really well done the whole watching it today yes it was only <laughs> 10 minutes and 10 seconds in total as opposed to over an hour for the for the Branson flight, but if somebody was to say to me, here you go, Nick, you've got to spend this money on a space flight. Here's $200,000. Which are you going to go with? To me, it would have to be the Bezos experience right now. Personally, I, low Earth orbit doesn't interest me that much. ISS even doesn't interest me that much. If somebody said, do you want to go to the moon? In a heartbeat. Absolutely no question at all. But I just think it was it was just a better, I don't know, viewing experience. What do you, Terry, thoughts? Yeah. I, I'm amazed that you're not interested in low Earth orbit. I would go in a flash. I'm not quite as old as uh, as Wally. <laughs> I hope we could survive. But I was just thinking there, don't you wish you had a billionaire or millionaire father who could have entered the lottery for you? Uh, one of the interesting aspects in that is that the guy who actually won the lottery for the fourth seat with uh, Jeff Bezos didn't go. He had, he had other commitments. I know. Oh, I know. It's like, I, I not believe that. I would drop everything else. But it's, apparently, uh, sorry, just to finish actually what was coming on that, uh, the, guy, the young guy that went up, Oliver Damon, the uh, physics student, his father was a, a millionaire, a, a Dutch business millionaire. So he was the one that did the second highest price. So whenever the guy that won, and we don't know his name yet, uh, whenever he dropped out, they offered it to uh, to this guy and his his son. Obviously, was the one who was going to go. So he, as you say, was the youngest person into space. Into space. But apparently now, the guy who actually did win the lottery is going to be offered another chance to go. Whether he has to pay for it this time or not, I don't know. I mean, if, if you're Jeff Bezos, you could send a thousand people up into space and, and not need to take the money off them. But uh, That'll, that'll be interesting to see who that guy is. But yeah, as you say, fantastic stroke of, uh, of genius and, and, and generosity to offer the place to, to Wally Funk. And also then, just by coincidence, on the same flight, the one that was the second winner uh, on the lottery and got the flight was the youngest. So two records on the same flight. I know it's fabulous. And for those of our listeners who don't know, it's the 52nd anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission. Yeah. Right. yeah. So... It's it's a really historic day, and I'm sure the guy who who said he had other commitments will be kicking himself now 
probably until the day he dies um, for missing out on what is technically, you know, and this goes again back to this issue with the Carmen line, technically the first time this has happened. Obviously, tourists have gone up onto the ISS before. They played millions yeah. and millions of dollars to go on the ISS. Some of them better experiences <laughs> than others. You, you, you hear rumors of some people just basically spending the entire duration throwing up. Um, that's the other thing that interests me with the Virgin one. You look at the size of the capsule and obviously inside Jeff Bezos's uh, the Blue Origin capsule, it, it looks quite spacious, but you still you still put in six people inside. And on the Virgin Galactic flight, there were only four people on that flight, and it can take six. And they were still bumping into each other. And you only have to imagine, yeah, anyone who's been on a roller coaster knows that that feeling of nausea will get you. It's called the Vomit Comet, the zero-G parabolic arc flights that take mm. off from you know Toulouse and America, etc., and give people that zero-G experience that people like even Stephen Hawking went on one of those years ago. And you know, I know Charlie Duke, the Apollo 16 astronauts, done one as well uh, not too long ago. People throw up on them regularly. So I just can't imagine anything worse <laughs> than spending $200,000 being in a cabin that's basically about the size of the one on Concord, so quite narrow, quite thin. And having somebody throw up, um, especially when there's six of you <laughs> floating around for two and a half minutes in such a confined space. Anyway, I'm sure they thought of that. You can't open the window and get it all sucked out. Um, so I'm sure they thought of it. But it's, it got, was... Oh, sorry, Terry. I was going to say, I got the solution. Just bring your mask up with you. Then you keep it to yourself. <laughs> keep it to yourself. <laughs> this is the thing. I mean, it, it's sad to think, but at some point, something's going to go wrong. It always does. Yeah. I mean, you only have to look at airline, you know, airline safety in the 1930s, in the early days of, you know, transatlantic and other types of airline flight. The safety record was appalling. So, and this is, again, this is the pioneering days of space exploration for commercial um astronauts I'm not, and again i'm not really sure if they should be called astronauts um there should be another term astronauts you know it's like i'm i get on a plane i'm not the pilot i i don't call myself an airline pilot i don't you know i i've flown planes occasionally in the past you know i've had been on a few trial flights etc it's fantastic but i'm not a pilot i'm a passenger so are they astronauts? Are they, you know, what are these people? To call yourself an astronaut, yes, you can get your wings. If you go above the common line in particular, yes, you should be awarded your astronaut wings or something along those lines. But are they really astronauts? You know, these people train for years and years. They're highly skilled, highly trained professional people. And, you know, any one of them, Wally Funk probably could because she yep. is the only person who was on that flight today who has gone through all that training. So, yeah, technically she could be, uh, you know, she probably is an, an astronaut now. But it, again, it's an interesting topic, I think, that's going to, you know, do the rounds on Twitter and social media and everyone will argue this way and that. And uh, I can just imagine Elon Musk sitting back and thinking, hold on, I've been sending stuff up to the ISS and people up to ISS to orbit for, you know, quite some time now. Um, he could have easily stepped into anything, could have stepped into one of his own flights and beaten both of them and gone into orbit should he, should he have wished to. But anyway, we shall see. But it's 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 kind of definitely watch this space because it's only going to get more and more fun. And if Virgin Galactic move into orbital flight um, at some point in the future, or Bezos obviously is planning this with uh, New Glenn, then it's going to become really interesting. And I can't wait to see uh, how this develops. And, you know, hopefully it will um, allow more and more people to do it because, you know, Branson's announced this, you know, $10 competition where you can enter into almost like a lottery to win a space flight and, there's going to be all sorts of giveaways and prizes and TV shows. So lots and lots of people who couldn't afford this, you know, off their own bat, as it were, will be able to do this. And I think that's a remarkable and wonderful thing, you know, giving people an experience. And I'm hoping lots of politicians do it because they're the ones who need to see the fragile planet that we live on and, you know, the complete mess that they're making out of it. Anyway, moving on. Next story. Terry, this one's a good one. Yeah. The man we love to hate or the man we hate to love, Elon Musk. Uh, we've talked about this many, many times, and he's doing fantastic things in space. Um, one of the, the downsides, of course, is the uh, thousands of Starlink satellites that he's putting up, which are polluting the night sky, as far as astronomers are concerned. As well as that, the sheer number of extra objects being launched into space is becoming a problem. And again, we've talked on this aspect quite often, the Kessler syndrome. There are so many objects up there going around, many of them not under control. 
that sooner or later there's going to be a major collision between two pieces, either two bits of space junk or a piece of space junk hitting a satellite or uh, two satellites possibly even colliding. And then you can get what's called this, the Kessler syndrome, the runaway effect where such a collision creates so much debris that that in itself will then start to collide with a whole lot of other stuff and it becomes an exponential runaway uh, series of collisions with um, space just full of junk flying around, not in uh, any particular uh, control, all sorts of different orbits. And basically a near earth object could be, a near earth uh, space could become almost too dangerous to send any astronauts up or even any valuable satellites. So, um, as I say, Musk has been criticized a lot for all of the Starlink satellites. Some of them are already out of action, so they're, they're not particularly controllable. But everybody is aware, everybody in this business is aware of the risk of the Kessler syndrome. There are a whole lot of ideas have been put forward to try and get rid of that space junk, the stuff that isn't being used for any particular reason. It's floating around there not floating, whizzing around at 17,500 miles an hour thereabouts, and we need to get rid of it. And we haven't time to go into all the different uh, ideas that have been suggested for getting rid of it, some possibly practical, some definitely not practical. But he has come up <clears throat> with this idea that his starship could, as he says, chomp up space junk. That was the, the headline. And basically, the Starship has a huge big fairing which can open up to let the, um, the satellites that are being carried up into space, uh, basically the, the cargo, uh, to put them into their orbit. It's very big. It's, uh, the door of the fairing is about 30 feet in diameter. And it opens up a bit like the bonnet of the front of your car as you, as you open up the bonnet to check the engine. And his idea is basically that the um, Starship would cruise along with this big fairing open and a bit like Pac-Man, uh, sort of gobble up little bits of junk. Sounds fine. In practice, it's just not that easy. For a start, you have to match the speed of the Starship almost exactly with the object that you're trying to catch and, of course, the exact orbit as well. The thing is, if you hit it too fast, it's either going to damage the fairing or the piece is going to bounce out again and, you know, be a totally different orbit. And although space is crowded, they're not close together like, say, a swarm of midges. There's quite a distance between them. So if you catch one, you're then going to have to wait quite a while before you can move to another orbit to catch another bit. So while the idea is fine, I think his, his off-the-cuff Twitter response to a question uh, was perhaps, as I say, too much off-the-cuff. Uh, he didn't think it through seriously enough. Um, but the the basic idea is sound. It's just putting it into practice. Um, it's a very, very big space. I think it's what is the 300 and uh, I can't remember exactly, but 38,000 cubic feet uh, capacity inside that, uh, that fairing. So you can catch a fair amount of junk in that and bring it down. But it is literally just the problem of catching them. Uh, but at least he's thought about it. He's proposing to uh, have a go at it. Uh, they'll no doubt have to do all sorts of feasibility studies and so on, but at least is aware of it. And it's an attempt to address the problem, which is better than nothing. What do you think, Nick? I think it's interesting. It's it's basically, if anyone remembers the old Gemini era, the Angry Alligator yeah. or the James Bond film, You Only Live Twice, is another good example, where the, basically, um, obviously, the, the evil Blofeld was capturing um, both Russian slash, slash Soviet and American uh, spacecraft and chomping <laughs> them up in, the, in a similar kind of manner. I think it's interesting in some respects. You've got huge amounts of debris up there. There's 130 million pieces of debris in low Earth orbit to medium Earth orbit to geostationary orbit that we've been putting there since the early 1960s, you know, including things like 400,000 space needles that were put up to fake an ionosphere in the early 60s. Um, astronaut gloves dating back, you know, you watch Ed White, for example, and the glove floating out of the capsule on, on the Gemini, their first EVA by an American astronaut. All that stuff's still up there. There's, there's pieces as large as a bus. NVSAT, which is the European Space Agency Environmental Climate Monitoring Satellite, is dead and is the size of a bus and is still floating around up there and is going to be 200 years at least before it's nominally going to come out of orbit. And all of these things represent an enormous hazard. If any of our listeners want to see just what a problem this is, have a look at the Cosmos Iridium collision from 2009 where two satellites did collide and created thousands of pieces of debris. Uh, there was an experiment by the University of Florida 
a few years back where they built a test satellite about the size of a small fridge and fired at hypersonic speed, so about basically at about 16,000 miles an hour, not quite orbital velocity, but high enough, something about the size of a Coke can at this thing. And they were still picking debris out of the, the lining of the test chamber walls almost a year later. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of pieces. Now, the thing is, anyone who remembers their physics, K equals half A and V squared, you know, kinetic energy and, and mass related to mass and velocity. Essentially, something the size of a, you know, a small P traveling at 17,500 miles an hour coming straight at you is going to go straight through most things. It's going to wipe out a satellite. It could go straight through the windows of most spacecraft. And, you know, I think this is all going to change when somebody dies, when it, when an accident happens. And we only have to look at a few months back when the International Space Station's Canadarm was hit by a piece of debris to see just how near miss this mm. near miss is. You know, that could have been an astronaut out on an EVA doing a repair on the ISS. And the ISS has been hit hundreds of times. You know, there's damage to the solar panels. There's, you know, all sorts of pieces. I've got a friend who's got a piece of the, the Hubble solar array. piece of the Hubble solar array has been hit. We'll go on to the Hubble in a minute, but it's it's really quite disturbing. I got the UCS Uni, uh, Union of Concerned Scientists database download uh, a few days ago because we're working on something uh, at my office to do to do with this. And in the last few months, there's been 836 new satellites put into orbit. Now, up until about a year ago, there was only three and a half thousand active satellites in orbit. Full stop. At the rate they're going up, there's going to be upwards of 50 to 100,000 satellites on top of what's already up there that's dead, on top of the 130 million pieces of debris. And this problem is just growing and growing and growing. And whether Musk has said this is a flippant off-the-cuff comment, as you said, to kind of steer people away from the, the issue that most people have got with Starlink isn't just the decimation of astronomy and optical astronomy and radio astronomy in particular is being hammered by or going to be hammered by Starlink. The SKA, there's a new report with the Square Kilometre Array saying it's literally going to have some real issues. Um, I think it's not just Musk, and we can't just blame everything on Elon. You know, China are planning on putting up 13,000 mm -hmm. satellites. Amazon, you know, talking about Jeff Bezos and the, you know, hero worship he's getting for taking up Wally Funk today. He's planning a large constellation. The British government with OneWeb is planning a huge constellation. There's so many of these because everyone's seeing dollar signs and thinking, wow, I can do high-speed internet. Great. Fantastic. We don't need a thousand companies doing high-speed internet. We don't even need 10 companies doing high-speed internet. If Elon's putting up 42,000 Starlinks, that's more than enough for everybody um and we don't need that many it, it's just ridiculous and we've already got there was a, another report this week of a tumbling um communication satellite again completely out of control and these things happen all the time you get satellite collisions that we just don't know why batteries fail you know if a battery ruptures it can explode if you know a component a critical component fuel you know hydrazine tanks all sorts things can explode and then that's it the satellite could either be dead or in a tumbling orbit or in some orbit that you just don't know what it's going to intersect. And sooner or later, this is going to happen. There's going to be collisions. And it's it's a really horrible thought. But I just think people don't care. You know, it's out of sight, out of mind. It's like, you know, Elon Musk saying, oh, well, what we'll do with, with Starlink so that people can't see them is we'll um, put sunshades on them and we'll drop the magnitude to magnitude seven, knowing full well that human eyesight can typically go to about magnitude six on a really good dark site, unless you're Stephen O'Meara and you're hyperventilating oxygen on top of a mountain, uh, in which case you can get down to about mag seven. But most people, magnitude six, even on a really good dark site. So he thinks, oh, I'll put them at mag seven, no one can see. And it's out of sight, out of mind, the squirrel in the backyard scenario, <coughs> as I've said many times, in that, you know, if a squirrel dies in your back garden, uh, you care about it and you want to move it. If a squirrel dies in a forest you know, a few miles away, you don't care. And, and that's the thing. Up in space, you don't care. And this is the whole issue with ocean plastic as well. People didn't realize or didn't care about it until it became a real public issue. And it started impacting companies' bottom lines and the likes of, you know, the big companies like McDonald's, et cetera, said, well, we should stop making plastic straws. We should do paper straws because it's harming the environment. And more and more companies are getting on board with this. Some are doing it properly. Some are just greenwashing, frankly, and, you know, buying carbon credits and, you know, doing absolutely nothing to really stop, you know, the, the runaway climate issues that we've got. But. I don't know. It's it's interesting. If he does it, if he pulls it off, if he manages to get this chomping angry alligator, fantastic. Otherwise, don't know. Not sure. Where do you put yep. all the debris? There's a good comment in the chat. Now. Where yep. do you put all the debris? That's the thing. If you deorbit it, and the one great thing that this could do 
is bring down the Hubble. If the Hubble at some point, we'll go on to this in a minute, if the Hubble at some point does fail to the point where it's irrecoverable, you could either boost it into a higher orbit until you've got time to service it, you know, because the mirror is not going to fail. It's the computers and the you know camera systems that will fail and then resurface it or bring it down and put it in the Smithsonian. So that could be its greatest thing. That's yeah. They're they're my thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. I anyway. know. Yeah, basically they do. They need to bring it down, or at least push it into such a low orbit that it would burn up harmlessly in the atmosphere. Would you, but uh, Terry, would you want to see the Hubble burn up? Oh no, no. I'm talking about the space junk. No, <laughs> oh, no. Junk, yeah, don't yeah. don't do that to the Hubble. No, no, no. <laughs> God no. Yes. Which yeah, brings us to that. Yes, <laughs> everybody's favorite telescope. Uh, the people just call it the Hubble now. Uh, Hubble to me was a man, so I refer to it as the HST, the Hubble Space yeah. Telescope. Yeah. You could go on all night talking about the achievements uh, uh, that that telescope has, has made possible in all areas of research. But basically, like all of us, it's getting older. And on June 13th, it developed a serious fault and stopped working. They found out that it was in the payload computer, which controls all the science instruments on board. So, of course, it's not just a telescope. There's a whole lot of actual science done uh, in terms of analyzing and uh, detecting different uh, frequencies and different wavelengths and so on. All the stuff has to be uh, processed uh, before it's downloaded. Um, you know, the, most of the analysis is done on the ground, but it's not just a telescope with a mirror floating up there. Huge amount of science on it. So NASA, with their brilliant guys in the Space Telescope Science Institute who uh, control the thing, they did some detective work and they found out that the problem was in the power control unit, which regulates the voltage supply. Obviously, you don't want the voltage dropping too low or spiking too high. And it actually shuts down if the voltage is outside safe limits to protect the system. And that is part of a more complex unit. Uh, the, it's a big, long name. I'm just calling it the SIC and DH for short, basically a sort of a master unit. Uh, so what they tried to do was to reset the power control unit, and that didn't work. And this is all taking time because you only get one shot at this. If, if you do something wrong, you could wreck the whole system. Uh, they did a whole lot of simulations um, using backup stuff and trying to uh, analyze it. Obviously, you can't actually send a mechanic up there to uh, apply a, an electric screwdriver and find out what's going on. You have to try and analyze it from the symptoms. So they tried to reset this PCU and that didn't work either. Then, uh, after a lot more deliberation and testing, they switched to a complete backup SICDH unit, and it has its own power control unit. Now, the interesting thing about that is that has not been powered up since the year 2009. And they were taking a chance in trying to switch over to a unit that has been floating around in space, not being used since 2009. As far as we can tell, it's all working. Now, they're not getting sense from it just yet. They're still testing and retesting everything. Uh, my analogy is if it's a bit like taking your car to a garage with an engine fault and they plug it into the diagnostics and they say, yeah, we think we know what it is here and we do the repair and the diagnostics say, yes, that's successful. But even so, you take it for a test drive before you send it back to the customer, or at least you should. So that's what they're doing at the moment. They're testing all the systems, making sure that everything is working, that nothing will sort of uh, interfere with any other system. And uh, we're hoping that within the next day or two, they'll start to get actual science operations done again. And as we we're talking about there, HST is basically an invaluable uh, tool for uh, astronomy in all sorts of areas from the farthest areas of the universe to imaging within our own solar system. Uh, the replacement, the James Webb Space Telescope, is ready to go up in October, I think is the latest date. Uh, if it does, it will not entirely replace the, the Hubble Space Telescope. It was different, excuse me, different wavelength, but it will be sort of the new Hubble, if you like. And if um, if it's successful, then you could say, right, we could understand how the HST activities would be scaled down. If James Webb Telescope does not reach orbit or does not function properly, we're still going to need the HST for a lot more science. So to me, it's essential that it's still operational for as long as possible. 
and certainly up until the, the JWST becomes operational. And then, as you're saying, Nick, it would be a real shame if that was allowed to burn up in, in uh, the Earth's atmosphere coming down out of control. We do have to try and rescue it. Oh, it, it, to me, it'd be absolutely catastrophic if you know that was allowed to happen. Um, as you said, with JW, the problem you've got with the James Webb Space Telescope is that it hasn't been fully integration tested. That's the thing. There isn't a test chamber on the planet big enough to fully integration test the JWST. So all the individual components have been tested. Some of the instruments now have been ready for years. Um, if this thing fails, if the Ariane launch fails or the orbital insertion fails or the, you know, going out to Lagrange point fails or the deployment, you know, it's got to obviously ensure that it deploys perfectly, that there's no issues in terms of any of the instrument calibration, in terms of the mirror segments deploying and locking into position. If it goes wrong, there's no fixing it because it's too far out. We can't get there. Humanity mm -hmm. can't get there, whereas the Hubble was always designed for this repair capability. Now, going back to the previous story with Elon, if he's got such a large fairing system and, you know, his docking systems are pretty flawless now. He's been, you know, doing the Dragon docking with the ISS autonomously now for quite some time. If you've got that capability and they've put the grapple arm now on the Hubble during the last servicing mission, if you've got that capability, why not factor in the possibility of yet another servicing mission? Yes, we don't have the space shuttle anymore, but we do have very, very capable <coughs> spacecraft that are definitely able to approach the Hubble at the Hubble's orbital, you know, orbital height. And obviously it's a lot higher up than the ISS is, but approach the Hubble and lock onto it. And then, you know, there are people, the likes of Mike Massimino, who's one of the amazing mm -hmm. astronauts who fixed the Hubble uh, back in the day, and John Grunsfeld, et cetera. These people were quite happily prepared to put their lives on the line for this instrument. They, they You know, and Sean O'Keefe, the NASA administrator at the time, and I remember I was in a conference in London, I asked uh, one of the speakers, when's Sean O'Keefe going to be fired? Because he basically <laughs> said, you know, we're not going to fix the Hubble anymore. It's like, uh, hold on, everybody else wants to. You know, and I've got friends who work at NASA Goddard, et cetera, and they've all, they were all like up in arms over this. They're like, we need to fix this. We need, you know, there are people quite prepared to do this. And if somebody or a group of astronauts are prepared to put their lives on the line to fix it, you know, the mirror is still a really good mirror. Perkins Armour, okay, they made the mistake with the, you know, initial design of the mirror and it was out by a few, you know, micrometers, et cetera, and they had to put the corrective optics in, the CoStar system. But since then, it's been incredible. It's delivered more science papers than anything in history. And yep. It just, oh, you've either got to keep it going or boost it up until you can keep it going. And now with multiple agencies, and you've got Sierra Nevada coming up, up soon as well with their mini space shuttle, or X-37B, which is a, a kind of top secret space shuttle mm -hmm. um, that the U.S. Department of Defense run. Um, they've got something very similar with the Sierra Nevada spacecraft. If you've got mini shuttles and, and things that could potentially get to the Hubble, why not start thinking about a mission that could potentially give it an extra N number of years. Don't forget the cameras, yep. the computers, some of the computer systems on this thing are, are older than the engineers working on them. Um, you know, the, the computer, the PCU unit that you're talking about, the power control unit, and the main computers on this, uh, they're, they're decades old in some cases. So being able to overhaul what you can, I know you can't overhaul every instrument on, on the Hubble, but the ones that you can, again, you could give it a whole new lease of life. The camera yep. systems, we've got cameras now, you know, that you can buy at a local store that are more, you know, more megapixels and technically more capable in some respects. And obviously the Hubble one's incredibly sensitive and, you know, it's hyper-cooled, et cetera. But um, you could overhaul so much on this if you could get back up to it. So that's my message. If anyone is listening from yeah. uh, any of the space agencies, um, fix it. Um, <coughs> yeah. Give it a yeah, it would be complementary to the JWST because, as I say, they do largely operate at different wavelengths. They do indeed, and that's the thing. JWST is more of an infrared instrument, and yep. you know, thankfully, at its L2 point, it's never going to be affected by space debris because that's the big issue at the moment. In that, all of the ground based telescopes, like the Vera Rubin, the ELT, etc., these enormous telescopes that are being built and hopefully being built if people allow them to be built in places like Paranal in Chile and Hawaii, etc., they're going to really struggle with their data reduction pipelines, if you've got tens of thousands of satellites, don't forget these telescopes can hit magnitude 26 to 29 with ease. So a magnitude seven satellite is literally, it's not just the satellite going across and a little, everyone thinks, oh, it's just gonna be a little line and it's gonna grow across and it'd be fine. If you understand how CCDs, the cameras that these telescopes use work, they have 
and non you know blooming systems on board so basically if you get a bright light source you get a big spike either side of it you get what's called a bloom so it kind of the the saturation of each individual pixel doesn't just affect that individual pixel it saturates into adjacent pixels and you get this horrible like blooming effect trying to wipe that out you know you could miss all sorts and we don't want to miss anything we don't want to miss comets we don't want to miss asteroids in particular but comets as well in particular because of the threat that they pose so you know and everyone says oh put more telescopes in space yeah look how difficult it is it's been 20 plus years with the jwst and it's still not launched yet because there's still issues and the cost of doing that and putting yeah. up something the size of the hubble again it's in the billions and then you can't fix it if you're putting it out at you know real deep space you just can't fix it so that argument, you know, if we can maintain the Hubble, I'd love to see it happen. Somebody said in yeah. the chat, does it make sense to consider building space stations around satellites like the Hubble? Potentially, but space stations, there's this is kooky idea to build a space hotel that looks like something out of 2001. It's like a big donut shape with a central. It literally does look like the, the orbiting space station in 2001. What you've got there is a gigantic target right now. You may as well just paint a dartboard in the middle of it because... With all the space debris and junk coming around, if you've got something that big in space, and the ISS is huge, but this thing's even bigger, it, it, you, like I said, you may as well just say, hey, come and hit me, um, until we really solve the space junk problem. And at the moment, we're not going to. I'm really pleased about the Hubble repair, but I think this is probably the last chance now. It's, you know, you've got the gyros, you've got the reaction wheels, you've got all sorts of things which are aging. You know, space is a harsh environment. And, you know, every year on Earth is like, you know, three years in space as well. There was some kind of analogy put along those lines. It's really difficult. The radiation bombardment, etc., is mm -hmm. and the thermal cycling. Don't forget, it's going night, day, night, day, night, day as it orbits the Earth. Thermal cycling between minus 100 plus degrees to plus 150 degrees is not good for anything. Um, so, I think this is the last chance they've got. I mean, they've they've pulled it together again now, but I don't think they're going to get another shot of this. If something seriously goes wrong in the next year or so, I think that's it for the Hubble, unless somebody does this and if elon musk wants to get the entire scientific community back on his side mm -hmm. saying i'll fix the hubble or saying i'll send a permission to fix the hubble that would pretty much do it because right now the scientific community hate him um because of starlink so there you go elon if you're listening and i very much doubt you are but if you are um there you go there's your challenge moving on to fixing and finding things in space our, our next story uh, this one's quite interesting as well. So, Skyrora. If you don't know who Skyrora are, they're a uh, relatively small company based up in Edinburgh in Scotland, and they've got um, a production facility in the Ukraine as well. Um, they're run by a combination of Ukrainian and British slash Scottish people. Um, fantastic story behind Skyrora. I really do love their story. Um, they literally built from nothing, and they're, they're growing now at quite some rate. They're having all sorts of issues with legislation and being able to launch in the UK. You know, there's all sorts of legal hoops, and Launch UK is still kind of only just passing through Parliament, and there's still issues with objections against various launch sites, the Sutherland launch site, you know, uh, Anders Polson who's the richest landowner in Scotland, even though he's not a Scottish national per se. Um, he's suing and trying to stop that because it's a site of special scientific interest. And then Shetland is also under attack because of the archaeological significance of some of the proposed sites near Shetland, where you know, Lockheed Martin and various other companies are planning on launching their rockets from. So, But Skyroar, who are, have kind of been ticking by with this small rocket, slightly bigger rocket, slightly bigger rocket, medium-sized rocket going up to the Skyroar XL, etc. And they're aiming for orbital and suborbital flight with these rockets so and they've been doing a great job uh cannot knock them at all they've they've really got some great ideas um they're doing it properly they've got fantastic 3d printing capabilities at their office uh offices and and facilities as i said offices in the ukraine they've got test chambers they've really been doing everything right um apart from being able to launch they had to go to iceland to conduct one of the launches recently because they couldn't get a launch license for the uk because civil aviation authority and all sorts of different things got in the way um what they're now proposing is to recall and recover. They they have um, the the first stage of Black Arrow. So Black Arrow was the only British launch ever, and it, it was yeah it was a British rocket and it was designed and developed by uh, British engineers etc. It was launched from Woomera in Australia. Um, and then essentially that was it. The the Wilson government, uh, Howard Wilson's government at the time, cancelled uh, UK space program as it was in terms of launch capability. So that all got knocked on the head about 50 years ago. 
However, it was able to launch the Prospero satellite, which is a communication satellite. Now, this thing's been, is part of this debris problem. It's up in orbit. And Skyroar is saying that they want to recover it. Now, much as I love Skyroar, and I really do love, I really have a lot of admiration for them, etc. I think this is, this is a bit of a PR stunt. This is a kind of, you know, they're looking for, you know, as much funding as possible and people to come in. And that's admirable. Don't get me wrong. I really want to see them succeed. But, the notion of recovering what is essentially not even that interesting a satellite just for the sake of recovering it, not many people understand this. And, you know, Alice Gorman, Dr. Space Junk on Twitter, she's come in and weighed in on this discussion as well and said, well, you know, what's the point, really? There are a few things that should be recovered. We talked about one earlier, Hubble. You know, if you're going to bring anything back to Earth uh, that's been up in space, bring back the Hubble. The cues to the Smithsonian, if you had the original Hubble Space Telescope in it at some point in the future, would go around the block. Absolutely. The only other thing I think that is worth recovering is Snoopy. And, uh, you know, people who know me have know I've been involved in the hunt for that and potential discovery of that a few years ago, uh, which is the Apollo 10 uh, lunar module which is the only one still up there because all the others we've crashed into the moon or in the case of Apollo 13, crashed back into the Earth and is now what's left of it at the bottom of the Tonga Trench in the Pacific, probably just the RTG, the, the radio thermo isotope generator uh, that was on board because they were basically built to withstand a tank blast, as it were. There, to me, are the only two things worth recovering. If you could, you know, engage with Snoopy and pull it back, you've got, you know, an Apollo guidance computer. You've got all the interesting biological uh, experiments that will be on board from John Young and uh, Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan's waste materials that were left there. Um, it would be fantastic, I think, to bring that back or the Hubble. This one, what's the point? Um, like I said, and... I've got huge admiration for Skyroar in terms of everything that they're doing. I think if they are to bring it back, yeah, it'd be interesting, you know, potentially as a as a thing to remarry it, as it were, with that um, with the first stage that they already have. They're crumpled uh, to pieces. First stage that they already have, but they do have it um, from Black Arrow. I don't know, Terry. What are your thoughts yeah. on this? <clears throat> I think it's uh, the significance of it is purely national. It was the only British satellite which was launched by a British rocket. So maybe this is trying to sort of catch in, cash in on the the Brexit fervor or whatever. Although uh, Sky Rower are based in Edinburgh and Scotland didn't vote to uh, to leave the EU, but we'll not get into the politics too much. But I think it's it's that. Uh, it's a local interest and the only British satellite ever launched by a British rocket. And uh, if it could be done relatively easily and brought back and put on display and, uh, you know, excite, excite a bit of interest in what there was uh, originally of a British space programme, which, as you say, was horrendously cancelled by the Wilson government with a, a knock-on effect on, on uh, the British space research and industry for, for many, many decades. I don't think we've still recovered from it. Uh, they had a very negative attitude, but uh, we did actually do that, and the Black Arrow was a, a successful rocket. The only reason it was cancelled, apparently, was that they could get launches from the American Scout rockets more cheaply, so it was a money-saving exercise. But if they had um, proceeded with it, I'm sure they could have brought the, the cost down, and that would have got the, the British space industry off to a, a good start. That is history, but yes, if you could bring it back and put it on display in the Sands Museum or somewhere like that, or at the Space Centre at Leicester, it could be a focus for reviving some interest in um, Britain's early efforts in space. Yeah, potentially, but it's interesting you touched on that point about the cost cost implications. Yeah, the UK is aiming to have launch capability within the next year or so. And uh, yeah, it's multiple sites up in Scotland, as you've said. Now, Scotland yeah recently had some elections, and we don't want to talk too much about the politics, but there's a very high likelihood that Scotland will decide to devolve itself from the United Kingdom, which then again throws the whole UK launch into effectively disarray because it won't be UK launch, it'll be Scottish launch and most of the sites are in Scotland. There's a potential launch site at Lambeda in, in Wales where they're looking at a balloon-based launch, so taking a high-altitude balloon, having a rocket underneath it, and very similar to the Virgin Galactic model, kind of dropping the rocket and boosting it up when it's really high up in the stratosphere. Um, and then obviously we've got Spaceport Cornwall coming online very soon and that looks like it's probably going to be the first one where they've already proven their orbital capability with launches from Cosmic Girl etc in the United States. Um, but it's a whole issue of cost. Again, 
if the UK is going to be successful at this, then the cost of launching from the UK needs to be competitive against what mm -hmm. SpaceX can offer. And right now, we don't have reusability. Nobody outside of Jeff Bezos, you know, obviously with what he's done today, first one actually to send something that was reusable into into space, um, you know, before SpaceX had even achieved it. But now SpaceX is doing it far better than anyone else and far cheaper than anyone else. Their launch costs are blowing everyone. United Launch Alliance, Roscosmos, they're tearing everyone apart. You know, the Chinese have got their own program. They're not going to use American launch vehicles, so they'll continue with their own thing and that'll be state funded, etc. But in terms of cost competitiveness, if it costs substantially more to launch from the uk than it does from america and don't forget america can do equatorial launches through to polar and sun synchronous mm -hmm. launches because the size of the landmass is so huge you could launch from alaska into polar sun synchronous or you could launch from the cape into equatorial so they don't have the issues that the uk has in that respect as companies like you know black arrow space industries um a uk-based company they've been looking at developing a ship for launches which could be really interesting because again that's being done by the chinese right now in terms of launching launching off a, a sea-based vessel but if the cost isn't right you know i could just get if i wanted to launch a cubesat a cubesat is 10 centimeters squared i could put that in a pellet case stick it on a plane take it with me to india to a pslv launch or take it to america to you know a launch from you know a spacex a, a rideshare of spacex and do it for the cost of a plane ticket and a plane ticket to the United States or a plane ticket to India is going to be way less potentially than even the insurance and all the other costs that could be, you know, dumped on the UK's launch industry here. So that's an interesting one to see forward. I think what Skyrora planning is really good. If they do continue to launch from the UK or hopefully do launch from the UK, fantastic. Like I said, their last launch was from Iceland. So... They're looking at this, you know, very seriously. They've got very keen business heads on. And I sincerely hope that all of the UK, I hope we don't have a launch from Newquay with loads of fanfare and the prime minister turning up and everyone waving flags, et cetera. And then it kind of all gets forgotten about or up in Scotland, in Shetland, which is going to be incredibly difficult to see because it's on a remote Shetland island. Um, and, you know, beautiful archaeology and beautiful in terms of tourism, but quite difficult to get to not like the cape where you've got disney world and you've got a whole plethora of different things you've got the epcot center you've got the everglades so it's a whole tourist experience not just to go down there for a launch but you can do a whole ton of other stuff so um interesting really really interesting um and again watch this space on that one um speaking of watch this space we've also got the next story which i know terry's uh, terry's been following uh, and i love a good comic but this one's amazing yeah this is uh, probably the biggest comet uh, that we have ever observed. Uh, many, many times bigger than, than any others. Um, some people may remember Hale-Bopp, uh, which was spectacular just at the end of the last century there. Lots of people saw it with the naked eye. Uh, this one is thought to be of the order of 100 kilometer diameter. And that's the nucleus of the comet. When it sort of becomes a proper comet with a big coma, it becomes millions of times bigger than that. But that is one heck of a big object for a comet. For example, Halley's Comet was of the order of maybe 10, 12, 14 kilometer diameter. This thing is much, much bigger. It has also come in, as far as we can tell, straight from the Earth cloud, which is a huge cloud of these objects. Hypothetical, we haven't actually observed it yet, but on the very far outer reaches of the sun's influence. It ends at about one light year away, roughly, and uh, we're talking about the distance of four light years, or just a bit more than four light years to the next nearest star. So this is extending out to approximately a quarter of the distance from the sun to the next nearest star. Huge reservoir, we think, of millions, perhaps billions of comets, dating back to the sort of the very, very uh, early days of the solar system. It has been hypothesized simply because we thought, where do comets come from? This is the first one that we've actually observed that we are pretty sure has come straight in from the Earth cloud. Now, there's an awful uh, lot of publicity about mega comet heading for us. It's not heading for us. It is heading for the solar system. It's never going to get any closer than the orbit of Saturn in terms of coming uh, as closest to either the Earth or the Sun. Interestingly, it'll come slightly closer to the Earth than to the Sun just because of the way we are orbiting the Sun. It is a very inclined orbit. It's almost at right angles to the planes of the planets, so it's not going to be coming in past Pluto, past uh, 
Neptune past Uranus plus uh, Jupiter and so on, it would be dipping down through the lower uh, part uh, as we conventionally image the, uh, the solar system with our north at the top, if you like, dipping down and then uh, zipping around the sun very slowly. Zipping isn't perhaps the right word. Uh, and then heading back out into outer space again. But it's, first of all, the, by far the biggest comet we've ever observed. And secondly, it's the one that's coming in for the first time that we have observed coming in from the Earth cloud. Now, it's still about 19 astronomical units away from us and the Sun. And an astronomical unit is the average distance between the Earth and the Sun, about 93 million miles, 150 million uh, kilometers. So it's still a long way off very, very cold, uh, out between the orbit of Saturn and uh, Uranus. And what's interesting is that we have already seen signs of cometary activity from it. When it's out in deep space, it's frigid, temperature not far above absolute zero. As it gets closer to the sun, it starts to heat up. Nobody expected it to start to heat up and uh, emit, or uh, sorry, uh, exhibit cometary material so far out. In other words, this, the gases start to sublimate from the, the surface and it develops a coma, which is what gives the, the comet its typical appearance. Very interesting to see that the uh, astronomer in New Zealand who first spotted this is somebody I know, Michelle Bannister, because she spent some time here at the Astrophysics Research Centre in Queen's University in Belfast. Uh, she is originally uh, from New Zealand and she's gone back there. But uh, she's a delightful uh, young female astronomer. It's great to see female astronomers uh, doing so well. Uh, she honoured us with a, a brilliant lecture on some of these outer, outer solar system objects when she was here in Belfast. But she, although she was working from New Zealand, was actually using a telescope based in South Africa. And uh, she was looking at the images from it, and she was the first to discover this cometary activity. Now, everybody's going to say, mega comet heading for us. Unfortunately, unless things are uh, go much, much more favorably than even the most optimistic people expect. This will not be visible to the naked eye. It may not even be visible in binoculars. You may need a telescope to see it, but it's going to be absolutely fascinating for those two reasons. It is by far the biggest comet we've ever uh, observed, and it is coming straight in from the Earth cloud. Uh, it may have possibly have been around the sun once before, but it's very, very unlikely. Uh, the orbital period is about five and a half million years. So it'll come in, enter the solar system, not any closer than the orbit of Saturn, and then disappear out into outer space. But when it's here, it gives us an excellent chance using powerful telescopes to study something that we've never had a chance to study before. And I know you're fascinated by comets too, Nick. Oh, I, I love comets. And, you know, going back to Hale-Bopp, Hale-Bopp's nucleus, the estimated, was around about 35 kilometres wide. And if, you know, we've said about this before, the, the thing, be it a comet or asteroid, and there's still, you know, some debate you know, leaning towards more cometry this uh, in the last few years, that wiped out the dinosaurs 66 million years ago, that was about 10 to 15 kilometres wide. So 100 kilometres wide would be interesting if it was coming our way. The Oort cloud is this phenomenal reservoir of comets. And yes, it is theorised in terms of we haven't directly seen anything in the Oort cloud because we don't have telescopes that powerful yet. Um, but then the Herschel Space Telescope has been able to image similar reservoirs of comets around nearby star systems, nearby exoplanetary mm -hmm. systems. So we know that these things exist and we know obviously that the Kuiper Belt, the Edgeworth Kuiper Belt, its full and proper title, which is between kind of the orbits of Neptune out beyond Pluto, which is where New Horizons is. Again, there's 800 million potentially objects there and in the Oort cloud, potentially trillions of comets. What's interesting with this is this is huge so there's obviously lots of other things that are equally huge out there and they do take millions of years to come in but if you know our solar systems orbiting around the galaxy every 250 million years if something's starting to happen out in the Oort cloud where something's disturbing these orbits yeah we're in for a fun time um it's it's fascinating to see though and cometary activity you're saying it in 19 au to see cometary activity if you think about it when hale bot was spotted and they started to see cometary, you know, Thomas Bopp and uh, Alan Hale. And Thomas Bopp was at a star party uh, looking through an amateur telescope, kind of saw something a bit fuzzy and a bit wrong. Uh, and then Alan Hale at a professional observatory at the same time, both picking up this uh, amazing comet. You typically don't see cometary activity in the comet until the comet crosses what's known as the ice line, which is kind of Jupiter-Saturn orbital distance. This is way further out still. Mm -hmm. So the, the sheer size of it, 
I'm guessing is probably the, re the solar radiation energy hitting something that large. Potentially, you're going to see some activity because you've got a huge surface area that's obviously mm -hmm. collecting all these photons. Much like you know, you see an atmosphere at Pluto, or we've got atmospheres in uh, Neptune and Uranus. Um, you know, Pluto and some of its moons. Some of those moons, when New Horizons flew by, look like comets, look like dormant comets. So. You know, Pluto itself having a tenuous atmosphere, uh, which has been, you know, imaged and observed and, you know, fantastic image when New Horizons have flown past, you know, looking through the orbital plane and, and seeing the atmosphere of Pluto was quite remarkable. I think it's kind of that. This thing's so big that why wouldn't it have an atmosphere um, or, you know, display cometary activity as it starts getting in closer and closer to the sun? I'd love to see a mission to it. We talked about this last time. But, yeah, it's, it's great. As you said, female astronomer picking up this from a remote telescope observation in South Africa. You know, again, <laughs> watch this space. But unfortunately, you won't be able to see it. It's not going to be like Hellbop, which was stunning in the sky. Uh, you could see that from central London. I remember walking down Oxford Street and just looking up and going, wow, I can see a comet. And I'm in the centre of London uh, with all the light pollution. And speaking of light pollution, we'll close up uh, the show today with what have we got to look out for? Um, we're coming to the end of not to lose in cloud season. Um, there's some really interesting uh, planetary activity at the moment. Um, Terry's going to talk about some fantastic images coming in of some of the planets. What's your what's your high points, Terry? Yeah, as you were saying there, not to lose in clouds. We'll maybe get another week or so of activity. Uh, there'll be some fabulous displays over the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, search on the internet and you'll see some beautiful photographs. Going back to space, we have some very good uh, passes of the International Space Station over the UK and Ireland for about the next week. Um, just look for various apps that you can get on your smartphone or the Heavens Above website. Uh, we're going to start getting some uh, meteor activity at the end of July, building up to maximum on the 12th, 13th of August. But uh, it's the, ma the major uh, show of the year for most people because it occurs in the, in the summer whenever you can go out and observe for a reasonable length of time without getting frozen. The Perseid meteors, they're actually starting around about the last week of July, but into late July, early August, you start to get a reasonable amount of activity. As you said, Saturn and Jupiter are now appearing uh, in the southeastern sky when the sky gets dark. They're slowly starting to move further north in the sky, so we'll get better views of them in the next couple of years. But uh, with any telescope, you can see the moons of uh, Jupiter and the rings of Saturn, a fabulous sight. And just one interesting little thing, on the 25th of July, the night of the 12th, 25th of July, the moon will pass just five degrees below Jupiter. Now, just five degrees is actually misleading because you sort of expect all the objects in the solar system, the moon and the planets and so on, to orbit in exactly the same plane, but they don't. The moon has an inclination of over five degrees, about five and a half degrees to our orbit. So even though it's passing Jupiter, it will actually appear quite far below it in the sky. And Jupiter itself isn't exactly on the ecliptic, the path of the, uh, the Earth uh, around the sun, as we see it projected on the sky. It's a bit further south than the, the line of the ecliptic, but the moon is even further south than that. So it's just something to note, and it emphasizes just how tilted the orbit of the moon is relative to uh, the, the way the Earth and the, uh, the main planets move around the sun. So that's something to look out for. Yeah, and you said about degrees. If people don't know how to what 10 or 5 degrees is, if you stretch out your arm and hold your fist kind of clenched, the distance between that side of your fist and that side of your fist at an arm's length is around about 10 degrees. So it's kind of half that distance, as it were. If you stretch your fingers out, it's about 15 degrees. That's kind yeah. of, it's a great way to, to tell the time as well. If you look at the, don't obviously look directly at the sun, but if you look at the sun's position in the sky and you hold your arm out, you can basically work out because the sun moves at, you know, X number of degrees per hour, you can work out roughly what time it is. It's a, it's a neat trick if you want to pull that one off. Other things to look out for, obviously, you uh, using sites like heavens above you can do things like iridium flares again these balmy summer nights are wonderful i saw an iridium flare a few days ago and it was one of those things that you know you know it's going to happen and you know when it's going to happen it's a great party trick to be able to say right see that bit of sky there watch this and just almost like snap your fingers and watch something flare up really bright and then kind of disappear again uh, just fun things to do in the summer um Speaking of fun things to do in the summer, we're going to have a bit of a break. Um, I know we've just come back um, the last couple of weeks uh, after another little break. Uh, we are going to have our summer holiday recess um, because we're all a bit kind of 
flaked out with the whole COVID thing and we all need a holiday and we're all going to be taking little breaks, probably none of us going abroad anywhere. But I know the Space Store team have worked staggeringly hard um, you know, getting all of the systems that allow us to, uh, you know, deliver this show, you know, the really fantastic music, the backgrounds, all of the, you know, enhanced cameras that they've been using, etc. It's really, really wonderful. And they're a great team of people. And they've had a, a really tough year, obviously, with the Space Store shop itself being closed in their Dicot location. Uh, but they've continued to this and their support for myself and Terry has been absolutely remarkable. Yep. And we, we can't thank them enough uh, for this. They're having a break as well. I'm having a, a bit of a time because I haven't seen my family in, in nearly two years now. So uh, I'm going to be having a bit of a break as well. And I know you're going to be having some time as well, Terry, uh, flitting around your beautiful island that I, I miss so much of Ireland. Um, we'll be back in September, back and strong and going all through the winter season. So if you enjoy the shows, please subscribe. Please like, keep tuning in. We really do enjoy it. We love the chat comments. We love people commenting in, in, you know, in the chat while we're live and also people watching it afterwards. And then getting in touch with us via Twitter and Facebook, etc. It's really, really nice. And the comments and compliments we've had and the support yep. we've had over the last year. I think I don't know what's the subscriber count now, Latch. It was in the it was in the four hundreds. We're not huge. We're not like Kim Kardashian. We're not like breaking the internet every time we go live, but we enjoy it and it's STEM and we really do genuinely love what we do and just put yep. a slightly different take on things. So yeah. Agree, totally. Brilliant. Okay, uh, have a good holiday, uh, everybody. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I'm just going to chip in with the final bit. Uh, thank you so much for another amazing show. Uh, thanks to everyone who's tuned in tonight and for anyone who's going to be watching this on Catch Up. Remember, please do remember to hit that like uh, button. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. It will help our channel grow and you'll support us in bringing you bigger and better things to come. Um, while we're away, remember, you can catch up on all of the events that Terry and Nick were discussing uh, to look up for on the spacedoor.co uh, forward slash events page. So go check that out. Um, a big shout out to one of our patrons, Ground Based Space, who actually did a nice video on Space Store. So go check out Ground Based Space on YouTube as well. Thanks for supporting us ever since we've started. Um, if you're in and around the Didcot area, remember that the store is open. So go check it out. Um, we do some really nice smoothies, which will help you get through these um, hot summer days. And um, if you're not in the Didcot area, um, remember, we're still doing a bunch of online experiences uh, for you and your family. So go check those out on our website. Um, and yeah, we'll be back in September with a run of another great shows. Um, thanks, Nick and Terry. It's a pleasure having you guys um, on the roundup. You, you did an awesome job again tonight, as always. Thank you for listening to the Space Store podcast. You can tune in live to our Space Roundup with Nick and Terry and be part of the Q&A every other Tuesday at 7.30pm on youtube.com forward slash Space Store Live. Whilst you're there, catch up with season one and two of the Space Roundup and lots more. Like what you heard today? Why not support us by visiting our website, spacestore.co and check out how we are bringing space to everyone, everywhere, every day.